I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Say, the Lord Almighty, and see if I will will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Say, the Lord Almighty, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, thanks, and good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, please keep Malachi open. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn to God's Word. Father, we do thank you for your goodness, your greatness, your majesty, your holiness. Thank you for speaking to us through your words. Please challenge us and encourage us today as we uh, look at this passage. Uh, would you speak to us? Would you give us humble hearts ready to hear? Uh, and wisdom to know how to respond. Please be with us, we pray. Amen. What's the worst thing you've ever stolen? Worst thing you've ever stolen. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I've never stolen anything. But I reckon you might be in the minority. I reckon probably for most of us, we can think back to something. Maybe at some point we might have stolen. My earliest uh, recollection was mostly my mum's memory, but she's told me about this. I came home from nursery school with this little traffic light that sort of changed colours and it was like, I loved the sort of little mechanism. And I told her that nursery said I could have it. Uh, She did not believe me and she was wise not to believe me. She took it back and turns out I had uh, borrowed it from from nursery. Uh, That's that's one of my earliest. Uh, When I was a teenager, I was convicted by God that I had been downloading music illegally uh, from, from uh, torrent websites uh, and downloading albums uh, and I was convicted that that wasn't, that wasn't the right thing to do, that was stealing and so I deleted it all and started paying for music, uh, buying CDs I think even at that point, so there you go. Um, th- those are a few examples from me. I remember at work uh, the, the company decided to block social media and YouTube uh, on the computers it turned out people had been browsing these sites during work hours, uh, and they were saying, this, you should be working, you shouldn't be browsing, this is kind of stealing from the company, stealing uh, time. Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've had something similar at your company. Uh, here's a recent one for our estate. Uh, there's a guy, uh, every now and then, uh, about 2 a.m. in the morning, going around, trying door handles of all the cars in our estate. And it's going around on our WhatsApp group, and there's loads of ring doorbells and security cameras, people like t- sending in uh, videos, tracking him. 
Uh, and yeah, he's going around trying to have, seeing what he can get out of people's cars. But what's really interesting, one time, I haven't got the video, but he, uh, he, he sort of hears someone coming and you see him running and hiding behind a wall. And it's like, why is he hiding? He's hiding because he knows he's doing something wrong, right? That, that is the case when, when we steal, we feel guilty, don't we? we? We get this sense, we get this instinct within us that there is something wrong with what we're doing. The instinct is we know we shouldn't do that. Well, the passage today, God accuses his people of robbing him. And somehow they don't seem to realize they're doing it. They don't seem to have that, that guilt. And we'll see that's really serious. There's a question for us. As you see it on the screen, are we robbing God? We're going to think about what that means for us today as well. We are coming to the end of book, the book of Malachi. We've got one more sermon next week after this one. Uh, here's an, this, is, this is a book of Old Testament prophecy, which really challenges God's people on their attitude towards him. I'd love to hear what you've thought of it. I, I found it really challenging. It's been encouraging, I think, too, but, but it's hard, hard hitting as we think about what God was saying to his people then. And if you, if you haven't been here the whole time, what you, what, if you look through the book, you'll see a structure. And basically, each time God makes a statement, uh, and then the people sort of question it. They say, well, how are we doing this? What do you mean we're doing this, God? They don't accept it, they don't believe him, or they don't recognize it. And what we're seeing is this big picture of kind of complacent, half-hearted worship. They are not honoring God. And we come to the fifth statement and question today, which we're going to get to. But I don't know if you noticed this, but actually, this one begins a little bit differently to some of the others. So my first heading kind of reflects that. Here it is. God does not change. God does not change. We see that right at the start, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if, like I say, go through the book, you see many reasons uh, laid out why God's people deserve his judgments, his anger for, for what they've been doing. They've rejected him in all these different ways. Why haven't they been destroyed? Well, we see here, the Lord does not change. It seems amazing to us, doesn't it? We are so changeable as human beings. We change all the time in all sorts of ways. And God is not like us. God does not change. We're we're the ones that have been created, and he is the creator. Uh, He is reliable. He's consistent. He is often, well, not often, but he is sometimes described in Scripture as a rock. That's why I went for that picture in the the sermon heading. Rocks are, are solid, dependable, reliable. God always keeps his promises. He is perfect. He's perfect already. Think about that. If he changed, he would either be less perfect or more perfect. But he can't do that. He cannot change. He's completely perfect already. He is holy. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He cannot change. And that is really good news for his people. Uh, because of this fact, he, they are not destroyed. Uh, it, it talks about them as the descendants of Jacob. If you go back to chapter 1, that, that's, the book starts there. Uh, they are Jacob's descendants. They are loved by God. They are his chosen people. God has made a promise. He does not change. He keeps his promises to protect them and bless them and look after them. So there's, there's grace right at the start of this section. 
shown to God's people that, that he does not change, so they are shown grace. I think it's amazing. The pattern is very clear. You see it in verse 7. Since the time of your ancestors, again and again, what happens? They turn away from his decrees, his laws. They do not keep them. If you read the Old Testament in big chunks, it's good sometimes to read big bits of scripture at once. You'll see this pattern again and again of God's people not learning their lesson, turning away from him, not keeping his laws, forgetting his blessings, turning to other gods. God does not change, and that's really good. The trouble is that his people don't seem to change much either, and that's the bad thing. (laughs) We've got this pattern again and again throughout scripture that they are not changing. They need, you know, they keep turning away from him, but they're not destroyed. God is faithful. God keeps, keeps his people. It's a sign of his goodness, a sign of his grace, despite all, all that else is going on. And because of all this, he offers a call. Did you see that? Return to me and I will return to you. That's what he says. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. He's calling them to repent. Uh, repentance is a big word, but it's a word that means when we feel genuinely sorry for our sin, when we turn our backs on it, when we commit to leave our sin behind, when we put our trust in Jesus. And it's kind of, it is like taking a U-turn. That's why turning or returning is a helpful picture. Uh, there's a story in the New Testament. Jesus tells the, the story of the prodigal son who turns away from his, uh, his father in his house and goes off and lives his own way, wastes his inheritance and just, just ruins, ruins his life essentially. And he, he comes to his senses and he turns away from that evil way of life. He, he returns to his father. And as he's walking along the road, if you read it in Luke 3, this is an amazing moment. The father runs to him, returns. The father is running to him and embracing him and welcoming him home. And that's, that's that same sense here, do you see? Return to God. Turn away from that evil. Turn back to God. And you'll see God is returning to you. Ready to, to bless you and love you and care for you. It's an amazing message, isn't it? It's, it's not like some of the starts of the other uh, sections we've seen in Malachi. There's this beauty here in, in the repentance, in this restoration that, that, that could happen should they return to him. And that is true for us today as well. God hasn't changed. Remember, God doesn't change. He hasn't changed since these words were written. He calls us to repent. He calls us to, to put our trust in him, to turn away from our sin, to, to, to return, to, to make that opportunity to trust in Jesus, to trust in what Jesus has done for us, to repent, to return to God. And what does it say? He returns to us. Isn't that a staggering reality to think that we can be with God because he, he, he loves us? So it's, it's an amazingly promising start. But then we, get this, we go down a bit deeper and we start thinking, well, what does, it, what does it mean to repent in this context? They ask that question. They ask that question. Look at, um, look at uh, the second half of verse 7. Return to me, says the Lord, but you ask, how are we to return? How are we to return? Uh, and that question is slightly sarcastic, I think. I think they're thinking, what do you mean? We, we don't need to return to you. We're doing what we need, we're supposed to be doing. We're in the land. We're doing the right things. What do you mean return? And God says, will a mere mortal rob God? That's my second head- heading. Stop robbing God. Will a mere mortal rob God, he says, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? 
in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So that's pretty strong, isn't it? That is incredibly strong accusation from God on his people. It shows how seriously they have maybe strayed from, from what they should be doing. They are stealing from God. I love the contrast in this, in this passage. You see, they're described as mere mortals, these kind of small, weak, foolish people. And then all the way through, it's described, the Lord is described as the Lord Almighty, the Lord of heaven's armies, the, the, the Lord with all the strength. It's like an ant trying to topple an elephant, what they're doing. So what are they doing? How are they robbing him? It's all to do with tithes. It's all to do with tithes. You see, ever since leaving Egypt, uh, God had laid out his laws, given his law to his people in how they were to live under his rule, live under his land. And what they would do would, 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 was the law, were given, sorry, the law was given to remind the people uh, that everything they had, everything they had came from God. Everything belonged to him. All of the blessings they enjoyed were because of him. And so part of that system, part of that law was to give a tithe. A tithe is just, just means a tenth. That's what the word means. It means to give a tenth, basically, of, of all the things they grew, the produce of the land. They were to give a tenth of that to God. It was different to some of the other taxes they would have had to pay. This was for God himself. He owned everything, and it was for him. Uh, and actually, the, the Bible gives some reasons as to why God instructed this to happen. I'm not going to read the passages, but I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can, you can look them up later. Three reasons why the tithe was given, purpose. In Numbers 18, it, we see it's to, it was to provide for the priests and the Levites, the people who were responsible for the temple, for leading the people in worship. They didn't get any land of their own, so the tithe was to provide for them. In Deuteronomy 14, we see that it was also there to help the poor in the land. It says, for the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows, people who had been really vulnerable at the time, it was a way of providing for them, caring for them, when they couldn't provide for themselves. And also in Deuteronomy 14, it was there to provide for rejoicing, to, to provide for feasting. They would use some of that tithe to celebrate the Lord's provision for them. So, do you see, God gives them this command to give a tenth to him. But do you see, it's like, as they do that, blessing is, is given to them. It's clearly done for their good. Supports their worship, looks out for those in need, provides a way of celebrating. But the problem, when we get to Malachi's day, we see, well, they're not doing that. They're not giving everything that they should. They're not keeping their promises to God. And actually, if you go and read Deuteronomy 28, you see that this means they end up facing curses instead of blessings. That's part of the, the, the covenant that God lays out for God's people in that land at that time. Was that if they kept the law, if they did what they should, if they followed God, great blessing would come. If they didn't, they would be cursed. And that's what we see. God, God talks about that in verse 9, isn't it? You're under a curse, your whole nation. It's a big problem. It's like these, these people are worshipping complacently, not worshipping as they should, and yet expecting every blessing from God. And that's not what the law says. They've become too much like the nations around them, too much like all the others not worshipping God. I'm sure if we were there at the time, we might understand, might empathise with why they were doing that. Economic conditions were harsh. 
That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, life under Persian rule was, was difficult. We can empathize, can't we? We can start saying, yeah, I would understand if their temptation just to hold a little bit back, to make sure they had enough food, to make sure they could get by. And especially because it wouldn't have been obvious. You would still bring something to the storehouse, to the, to the temple, but you'd just fudge the numbers a bit. Just, you know, just adjust, adjust it a little, keep a little bit behind. Who's going to know? Who's going to know? That's why this is a test of the heart. Because actually, if you were giving the right amount, that was only really known between you and God. But God, you can't, you can't fool God. God knew what was happening. He, you can't hide it from him. And that's why he's saying, look, you are robbing me. He knew what was happening. And you see, it's quite a foolish thing to do. They were almost starving this tithe system that God put in place for their good, for their blessing. It's like trying to water a garden while also treading on the hose and wondering why no water's coming out. They were the starving the ways that God had given to, to bless them. So God says, like, stop doing this. Give everything you owe to me so there's food in my house. Provide for each other. Provide for the priests. And that's when blessing comes. That's my third heading there. God promises his blessing. God promises his blessing. Look at verse 10. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now I read this and I was slightly confused uh, because it talks about testing God. And I don't, you know, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you go to the New Testament, you go to, to when Jesus was tempted in, uh, by Satan in the wilderness. And he says in Matthew 4 verse 7, Jesus says to Satan, it is also written, do not put the Lord to, your, to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's pretty clear instruction, isn't it? To not test God. Usually it seems like a really bad idea. Uh, to test but and actually it's normally is a bad idea because it's showing a lack of faith it's showing a, a lack of belief it's saying i don't really trust you god so i need you to prove it by doing this or that i need you to prove yourself there's a difference here you see god is the one inviting the test god's the one saying test me that's different to to us putting a test in front of him he wants them to, to test him by trusting him, by acting faithfully, by, by seeing that he keeps his promises. If we set tests for God, that's a sign of faithlessness. That's asking him to make the first move. And that's offensive to God because we should trust him. We know who he is. We should be able to trust him whatever happens. But here the testing is different, actually. It's like the people are the ones making the first move. They're the ones obeying him, even if it is hard, even if it is, seems foolish to them. God is saying, test me. And actually, as he's doing that, he's testing them. He's saying, look, don't hold back the tithes. Trust that I will provide for you. Hold less tightly to the, the things that you think you need. And what an amazing promise of blessing, isn't it, in those verses? You'll have too much food to store. You, you won't even be able to keep it all. There'll be nothing lost to insects or, or famine everything will be fruitful instead of people under a curse you will be people of blessing you'll be the envy of all the other nations 
God keeps his promises. He does not change. If Israel was faithful, they would be blessed. So is that the application for us today as well? Uh, Don't rob God. Give your 10% and you will be showered with blessing. Something not quite right about that, isn't there? Actually, what you'll find is that this verse is an absolute favourite of false teachers, of people who teach the prosperity gospel. Here's a quote from uh, one of their websites, uh, the Lakeside Church, Joel Osteen. It says this, To be successful in your walk with God, commit to honour God with your finances. When you commit to give the Lord the first 10% of your income, God promises he will pour out blessings you cannot contain. Tithing is the first key to financial prosperity. And then he goes on to quote Malachi 3. Their message is a a false message. They say, look, give money to God, by which they mean give money to me and my ministry so I can flourish and, and be wealthy. And then God will bless you with more riches and more wealth. It's like sow the financial seeds and reap the rewards. If you're suffering, if you're ill, you're not giving enough basically that's the sort of message they put out and it is evil and it is despicable and they get rich by exploiting and abusing the trust of people who are in desperate need it's awful to see do you know the bible is really clear that this is not our calling as christians is not to to be super rich and wealthy in this life it's not to to, that's that's not look at the early church that's not the message they they preached i'm not going to read all of this but but you see the true teaching if you go to 1 timothy 6 where he warns against those who who think that faith and godliness is a way to get rich you see what it says in the middle there for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil actually the church faced persecution and hardship And they lived for Jesus despite that opposition. Not because they were expecting material wealth, but because they had been saved from from their sin, saved from hell. They had the hope of eternal life. That's why they followed Jesus. So how do we apply this passage if it's not that direct and straightforward? Because there is something we need to think about here. There is a challenge for us. Well, we need to start by recognising that actually our day now is very different to the day of Malachi. The church is God's people now, both Jews and Gentiles. It's not about a particular people group. It's not about a particular land. It's not about those laws that were specific for the time. And actually, if you think about it, for us to give 10% of the produce of the land, what would that be for most of us? For me, it would be a small bag of grass clippings. And that would be my, my offering to God, right? Well, that, that doesn't make sense, does it? There's no more temple, there's no more Levites. And actually, the New Testament does not stipulate, does not command a tithe in the same sense as the Old Testament. Few are thinking, oh, that's all right then. I don't, I don't have to worry about what I give to God. I can do what I like. Well, that doesn't sound quite right either, does it? We need to, we, we're still relating to God. God is the one who does not change. We've been brought into relationship through Jesus. The law may not be over us in that same sense as the the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, but it still reveals his character, it still reveals his holiness, it still guides us and shapes our behaviour. So how we give to God, it does matter. As to that question too, whether we are robbing him. 
actually, why don't we just stop for a second? I think that'd be good. That's a good question for us all to think about. Just for a couple of minutes, chat to the people around you. How might we be robbing God today? What do you think it, it looks like for us today for, to, to rob from him? Have a think about that question, then we'll come back together uh, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more. Go. <laughs> money but there's a balance perhaps uh, to be found there well let, let me finish uh, my sermon here by uh, suggesting three things that uh, i think are ways that we can stop robbing god how to stop robbing him some of some of the, the ways we can do that and i think it'll tie in hopefully with what we've been discussing firstly how do we stop robbing god we do that by giving him our best in every area of life every area of life. Now, we we did speak about this earlier, when we looked at chapter one, when God's people were not giving their best. They were not bringing perfect sacrifices, perfect animals uh, to the temple. But for us, we don't bring perfect animals. We are called to bring everything. Uh, Romans 12, verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's a challenge, isn't it? To offer our bodies, offer our lives, offer everything to God as sacrifice. Everything we do should be for his glory rather than our own. So we need to ask ourselves the question, is God the top priority in our families, in our work life, in our relationships with others, in how we spend our time? When are we most tempted to put something else first? When are we tempted to to rob God of that position? of putting him first. Each of us might be tempted in different ways to to replace God with other things, idols that that promise so much and deliver so little. And God's saying, listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Fight the sinful nature. Fight, Fight that temptation to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Offer everything to him. Give him the best in all areas of life. Give him the honor and glory he deserves. We are to give him the best of everything in our lives. But the focus of this passage is thinking about our possessions, is about our wealth. So where does that fit in? Well, we stop robbing God by giving generously. We're not told to tithe in the same way as the Old Testament. But actually there's lots in the New Testament about how we are uh, encouraged to give generously. And there's a similar principle. There's uh, kind of that sense, isn't it, that we could rob God if we hold on to too much if we're not trusting him. Again, I'm not going to read these passages, but I'm putting them up on the screen so you can look them up later. Uh, And I can always give them to you later. Here's four uh, principles from the the New Testament about what it looks like to to give. In Mark 12, we see that uh, Jesus honoring a widow who gave all that she had rather than other people who were giving out of their wealth in a way that didn't really cost them anything. It's costly giving there in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the church to save money in proportion to their income so that, he, that it can be given to Christians in need. Doesn't give a percentage, doesn't lay out a law like that. It's up to each individual to decide according to your income. Maybe think 5% is okay, 10%, more than that. It, 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 it's a personal decision there. And actually, two Corinthians chap- in 2 Corinthians 9, we're told to give what we decide. Not because we feel like we have to, 
not because not with real reluctance kind of not yeah not feeling like we really want to but cheerfully god loves a cheerful giver that that's what that that passage says that's a really helpful principle isn't it for us to think about he wants us to give cheerfully with joy in our hearts grateful for all that he's done for us so we give we give from that sort of hearts and in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends a church, the Macedonian church, for giving sacrificially, even though they were struggling and they were poor themselves. Uh, and they sacrificed a lot to give to other Christians in need. Actually, it's, it's, it's almost harder, isn't it, than, than just a straight 10%. It says, give in sacrificial and costly ways. Give when it hurts and do it cheerfully. Do it with gladness. That is hard, isn't it? And that is only possible when we're holding on to the truth of the gospel above all else, when we know that God, what God has done for us, the riches he, he has given us, and the provision that he gives us, the, the offer of forgiveness, when we hold on to that, then actually we, we can give more cheerfully. I think it also helps us to remember we're not living for this world. We're not living for the sort of temporary things that the world runs after. We're living for Christ. We're living for the sake of eternity. So it's a good thing to sometimes give in ways that means we might have to sacrifice some of that comfort. That's a challenge for us to think about, isn't it? How do we give counterculturally in a place like Kenilworth? If our homes and our, our driveways, if they look like everyone else around us, are, are we giving enough? Are we, are we honouring God with, what we, with how we give? So let me gently, gently encourage you today to... to consider your giving often it's i think it's easy to sort of say right 10 percent done let it just let it go for, for years and years without really thinking about it without reassessing i'll be honest uh, i'm conscious that our, our costs as a church will be going up in the months ahead uh, with the cost of bills rising the, the cost of hiring the hall is likely to go up uh, because we need to provide more money for the heating and all that sort of thing might you be in a position where you can give more to the church? And of course, not just to, to, to the church, but to other Christian charities, other missions. Now, let me be clear, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to push anyone into anything here. Remember the principles. The principles is it's, it's a personal decision and it's done cheerfully. And there may be some of us here going, oh, there's no way I can do that. I'm struggling financially. I'm terrified about the next few months and how I'm going to pay the bills that are coming through the door because the, the prices are skyrocketing. Well, do you know what? We're here for each other as a church family in the, that, those moments too. You don't, need to be, you don't need to hide that. There's no shame in, in explaining that and asking for help. We have a practical care fund so that those who have more can give into that and we can share it with those who have less that's the new testament principle that that's why what we do as a church family to look out for each other so wherever we are uh, financially at the minute there, there's something for us to to think through uh, and seek god's help in i think but in all of this the the final part of the puzzle is is we do it we we, we stop robbing god by trusting his grace by trusting his grace we, we've said already I mean, it's, it's quite hard to talk about this it's hard to talk about money and finances and sacrificial giving. I think it's hard because if we're honest, we can see ourselves in, in the same shoes as the Israelites here. Tempted to kind of hold on to too much for the sake of our own security. Not trusting God as we should to provide for us, to care for us. 
it's not, it wasn't a problem just then, it's a problem of the heart. And, and it's just the same for us too. This challenge here, it's saying, look, remember who gives you everything. God is the one who gives you everything. He's the one who provides all you need. All the things that we have, it will never bring life or happiness or joy. Ultimately, it's not God. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying we must all go and become monks and we sell all of our possessions and, and, and go and live in the woods somewhere. Because God gives us good gifts to enjoy. He is Lord of the harvest. He does provide for us. But there's a sense of kind of holding on to those gifts loosely. You know, being thankful for them, not, not uh, longing for things that we don't need. I found this quote helpful while I was preparing. What is truly glorious is giving thanks to God for whatever we have. Trusting him to provide whatever we lack, whatever we need, and looking to him as the source of every good gift. That's helpful, isn't it? A helpful balance thing. We keep looking to God. And when we do become convicted that maybe we haven't been honouring him with our money, with our stuff, or giving him our best in another area of our lives, what hope is there? Are we just facing the curse, like verse 9? Well, no. No. Thank you. Thanks to Jesus, we are not. He is the one who died in our place to rescue us from the debt of sin, to, to clear that stain of guilt and shame from us, to, to give us new life. He is risen. He is alive. He is, gives us this certain security that, that blessing is coming, that we will live with him forever. And when we're aware of our half-heartedness and we think, well, why should God bless people like us? We know it's because Jesus loves us and has taken our sin away. Such good news. And that's why we go back to the start of the passage. We remember what God says. He, he, he calls us to repent, to return to him. Return to him and he will return to us. We turn away from our sinful attitudes. We turn away from our love of money and our, our love of other things. We turn to God. We give him the honor and the glory that he deserves. He loves us. He has saved us. And actually, if we don't do that, it's almost like we're robbing him of his desire to pour his love out and, and, and the blessing that he has for us. The hope of the future is wonderful. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians verse 10, chapter 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That, that sums up, doesn't it? We want to live for him, not expecting material blessing now, but knowing the blessing of his love, knowing the promise of the wonderful future eternity and living for him in light of that. We need to pray. We need to ask for his help, don't we, to, to do all of this. Why don't we do that now? Let's pray. Father, would you convict us if we are conscious of ways that we are robbing you, whether subconsciously or consciously at the moment? Would you give us real wisdom to know how to honour you with all that you've given us, our possessions, our finances, our lives. Would you guide us to, to make sacrifices, to, to, to do more with our time and our money for the sake of you and the sake of your glory and the sake of the gospel. Uh, please help us trust you and know that, that whatever, whatever we face, we have that wonderful hope and that wonderful security. We thank you. I pray for anyone here today who does not know that security that they would repent they would return to you they would see the joy of, of knowing your love please be with us we pray lord amen